Our text for this morning is Matthew 22, 41 to 46. If you would, please go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Uh, Matthew 22, 41 to 46. I want us to begin our uh, time reading the text together. And as you turn there, let me just go ahead and reset the scene for you. It's currently Tuesday of Passion Week. We are just three days away from Christ's crucifixion. Time is slowing down dramatically at this portion of the gospel. Uh, Not long before this, Jesus publicly revealed his messianic identity at Jericho with the healing of a couple of blind men on the outskirts of the city. He then proceeded up to Jerusalem where he was hailed by the crowds as the coming Messiah on Sunday of Passion Week. He visited the temple that evening. Uh, He did so apparently to inspect what was going on there, to assess the character of the nation's worship. And it would seem that Israel failed that inspection because on Monday, he returned to cleanse the temple. He overturned the money-changing tables and the seats of those who were selling animals. He also publicly rebuked the nation for its hypocrisy and unbelief. He then continued to display his messianic authority by healing the blind and the lame right there in the temple's courts. And of course, it was at this time that even the children began to realize the significance of what was happening and cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David, because they understood that the Messiah was in their midst. The religious leaders, however, did not approve of what Jesus was saying and doing. And so on Tuesday, they cobble together this coalition of unlikely allies and they meet Jesus in the temple in order to challenge him. Jesus is too popular at this point to be arrested. The crowds are squarely behind him. And so they take the only route that they think they can take to get rid of him. They try to publicly discredit him. Essentially, they engage him in a theological debate, hoping that they can get him to say or do something that will undermine his popularity with the crowd. Uh, Basically, they try to produce their own October surprise. Uh, You know what I mean by that, right? It's not uncommon in a presidential election for some kind of earth-shaking revelation uh, about one of the candidates to occur just a few weeks before the election, and it can dramatically... Uh, affect the outcome of the election. This is called the October surprise. If you've been paying attention to the election this year, particularly this week, people keep talking about that. They keep asking, is there going to be an October surprise this year? Well, that's what's happening in the temple on Tuesday. The religious leaders are gunning for an October surprise. Over the past few weeks, we've been exploring this series of challenges together, and we've seen Jesus successfully rebuff every single challenge. In fact, Jesus is so successful in his answers that by the time we get to the last challenge, it's not even really a challenge. Jesus' answer to the Sadducees about the resurrection was so brilliant that it appears that it led to this dispute among the Pharisees as they began to debate about the meaning of it all. And so finally, this lawyer comes up to ask Jesus about the great commandment of the law, and he does this really to mediate the dispute. There is upheaval occurring among the Pharisees. Some are starting to see the merit in what Jesus is saying. And so this guy tests Jesus to see if he's qualified to be the Messiah. He does this by asking about the basic meaning of the law because the Messiah is supposed to judge the earth with righteousness. So basically he gives Jesus a bar examination. Well, he really asks this question to settle the dispute that's erupted in the wake of Jesus' answer to the Sadducees. And as we saw, Jesus, of course, passes that test as well. 
So it's Tuesday of Passion Week. And Jesus has just gone through this series of challenges that the religious leaders have brought against him in order to discredit him. He's passed every single test. And now Matthew writes this. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Since the beginning of Matthew 19, we've been in a section of the Gospel I've entitled, The Returning King. I call it this because in this section, Matthew prepares us for Jesus' departure by teaching us about the values and expectations that should shape our lives until His return. Jesus is no longer calling on Israel to repent in light of the coming of the kingdom of heaven as He did earlier in this gospel. Instead, He's largely withdrawn from the public sphere, choosing to focus increasingly on the disciples instead. In fact, from Matthew 16 on, Jesus is actually been telling the disciples that he's going up to Jerusalem not to rule, not to rule, but to suffer and die. That's been the trajectory of Jesus' ministry for quite a while now. He's on the path of rejection, not adoration. This journey will ultimately result not in his coronation as a king, but in his crucifixion as a sinner and blasphemer. So for a while now, it's been apparent that Jesus is going to depart His kingdom is not going to be immediate. He's going away. Jesus at this point is no longer to be understood as a reigning king, but as a returning king. Well, starting in Matthew 19, Matthew begins to prepare his readers for life between Jesus' resurrection and his return by explaining the values and expectations that should shape their lives in his absence. Remember, this this was an unexpected development in the program of God at this point in history. The people at this time didn't understand that there was going to be any sort of gap between the appearance of the Messiah and His eventual reign. They thought it would all happen immediately. This change in plans, therefore, requires a new set of instructions. The people have to be informed about how they are to live in light of this new information, how they are to live in light of this interval of time that up until this point they never knew existed. That's what Matthew spells out for his readers in chapters 19 to 25 as Jesus draws nearer and nearer to Jerusalem. He's preparing his disciples for that time. During this section, of course, we've seen several proofs of Jesus' identity as the Messiah. In other words, we're reassured of Jesus' messianic status with his healing of the blind and the lame on the outskirts of Jericho and in the temple. This is something that the reader could wonder about as they ponder the significance of Jesus' rejection and subsequent return, they could ask themselves, you know, was He really the Messiah? Is He, is, is he legitimate? Is His return legitimate? Or is it just a convenient explanation for His unfortunate death? Matthew addresses this issue with instances like the religious leader's question about Jesus' authority. It's obvious who Jesus is. He not only performed the miracles that the Messiah performed, but he had a verified prophet in John the Baptist who publicly testified to his Messiahship. The issue, in other words, isn't lack of proof. 
It's the hardness of the religious leaders' hearts. They've willfully blinded the nation to Jesus' status as king, and this is why he was rejected by the nation. These are all conditions that could be observed in Matthew's day as well. His readers would have personally witnessed this kind of obstruction firsthand as they tried to tell their Jewish brethren about the Christ. This would have made sense. In this section, Matthew also explains what his readers should expect historically in light of Jesus' absence. In the triumphal entry, Matthew makes it apparent that the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would come first in gentleness and not to make war. So this interval of time between his appearance and his reign, where the Messiah comes to make peace instead of war, that's to be expected. The kingdom will not be immediate. Even more than this, it's to be expected that Israel will endure a period of judgment, actually, instead of exaltation, according to the cursing of the fig tree and the parable of the tenants. And of course, when Jesus returns, He's going to establish a kingdom that is entirely different from the types of kingdoms that we see here on earth today. In this kingdom, relationships are going to be radically transformed. Institutions as basic as marriage are going to be done away with and replaced with a new kind of order. And when He comes, Jesus will dole out rewards. Rewards which far outstrip anything that a disciple surrenders in this life. All of His disciples will receive the same basic reward... Only He will award some of His disciples greater authority than others. This authority, however, will not be exercised in the same way that it's exercised in this age. Instead, it will be used to serve others. And the ones who will receive the greatest measure of this authority will therefore be the greatest servant. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven will be the one who serves. So we've seen these proofs to Jesus' Messiahship, these reassurances to His status as King, but we're also prepared for His return and we've been told what to expect at His return. Most of all, however, we've been informed about the kind of values that we are to live by in Jesus' absence. We're told, for instance, in the parable of the tenants that Jesus is going to temporarily replace Israel with a new body of people who will go out and do what the religious leaders failed to do in leading others to repentance. There's a mission that Jesus has in mind for His disciples in His absence. This body of believers will not be sent to personally overthrow the kingdoms of the world and replace them with the Messiah's kingdom. Instead, they will go out into the kingdoms of the world and invite everyone in those kingdoms into the Messiah's kingdom and wait for His return. This body will perform this mission by faith, according to the parable of the fig tree. And it will be primarily comprised not of the high and mighty, according to the the count of the rich young ruler, but of the low and insignificant. The nearness of Jesus' return means that His disciples are to live for the next life primarily as well, even putting off such basic things as marriage if possible. We saw in Matthew 19. The disciples are to mutually exalt one another instead of rule over one another. And most of all, as we saw last week, they are to love. This is the great commandment of the law, Jesus explains, to love God and to love one's neighbor as themselves. And this is therefore the ethic that His disciples are to live by in His absence. They are to love. Now, of course, this isn't to say that every single one of these events happened in order to explain the type of thinking that Jesus' disciples should adopt in His absence originally. 
There are a number of different reasons why Jesus would have said and done these things historically, but this appears to be the way that Matthew is framing this material. He wants his readers to understand the implications of these events and sayings in light of Jesus' return as king. This is going to be highlighted in just a few weeks when we get to the discourse that anchors this section of the gospel, the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is going to leave the temple, take His disciples up onto the Mount of Olives, and explain to them in great detail the consequences of Israel's unbelief and the sign of His future return. Jesus' Davidic identity, His status as the rightful heir to the throne of Israel, and as the Davidic king specifically, the promised Messiah, this is one of the major themes of Matthew. Really, I'd say it's the major theme of Matthew. It starts in the very first pages of the Gospels. Matthew traces Jesus' lineage from David down through Joseph. Well, actually, even going on before that. It continues in chapter 4, when, when Satan attempts to prove Jesus disqualified to serve as God's king with the wilderness temptations. Then there are the various demonstrations of Jesus' Messianic authority in Matthew 8-9. to For instance, we saw that He possesses authority over uncleanness and the cleansing of the leper. He possesses authority over sickness and disease with His many healings. We see His authority over the natural realm and His calming of the storm. His authority over the supernatural and the exorcism of legion. His authority to forgive with the healing of the paralytic. His authority to raise the dead is evident in the resurrection of Jairus' daughter, as is his authority to remove spiritual blindness in the healing of the two blind men at the end of chapter 9. All these things Jesus would need to do if he was going to usher in the kind of kingdom that's predicted in the Old Testament, if he's going to serve as God's Messiah. So again, this is the grand theme of Matthew. It is Jesus coming into the world as the promised Davidic king and declaring to the people, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And of course, the problem up to this point in the Gospels is that Israel has rejected that offer. They've rejected their king. They've refused to enter into the kingdom that Jesus offered. Their leaders willfully blinded the nation to the truth of the Christ. And so here we are at Passion Week. And it's evident, as Jesus stands here in the temple under the examination of the religious leaders, that in a very short amount of time, Jesus will be revealed not as a reigning king, but as a returning one. And Jesus must prepare His disciples not for His imminent rule, but for His imminent departure. Now that being said, it's worth noting that there is a very important aspect of Jesus' ministry that Matthew has not really developed up to this point in this Gospel. And that's his deity. Matthew does not focus very much on the idea that Jesus is in fact God. That's pretty significant. After all, the deity of Jesus is one of the most important components of Christianity. I mean, you turn to the Gospel of John, for instance, and it's really the point of the entire book. The Gospel starts with the deity of Christ, declaring, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And of course, it essentially ends with Thomas feeling the wounds in Jesus' hands and side and exclaiming, My Lord and my God. 
John says that this is the basic purpose of that gospel, to teach the deity of Christ. John says in John 20, 30, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Colossians 1, 15-16 says that Jesus is, quote, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things are created in heaven and on earth, invisible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Hebrews 1, 3 says that, the, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the power of His Word. This issue of the deity of Christ is so important that one of the very first debates in the history of the church centered on the meaning of passages like these. Did these passages say that Jesus was fully divine, that He was 100% God, or did they merely argue that He was a divine-like being, the greatest of all creatures created by God? It was from this debate that we get one of the very first creeds of the church, the Nicene Creed which states that Christians believe, quote, in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Ever since that early church council, the Council of Nicaea, it has been more or less assumed that any person who does not affirm the full deity of Christ is not, in fact, a Christian. It is that essential to the Christian faith. It is a core foundational issue. Indeed, I think it's fair to say that apart from the idea of substitutionary atonement, the deity of Christ is the one thing that makes Christianity truly unique. After all, there are many religions who believe in a God. And there are many religions that say there are men called prophets who have spoken on behalf of God and revealed God's will to man. But there is only one religion that says that there is a man who is the very revelation of God Himself. Not just a divine being, but God Himself. The very Word of God incarnate because He is Himself God. Again, Not just divine, there are many religions that can point to one individual or another and say that they are a God, that they're a lowercase g God. But there's only one that says that the chief prophet of their faith is the God. The one and only God, come in human flesh, and that's Christianity. This is just a supremely important issue in Christianity. And I don't even have time here to number the ways that this affects our faith or count the key doctrines that depend on this fact. But I think we would all agree that this is of the utmost importance to our faith and to the degree that to deny it is to deny Christianity itself. Well, one of the interesting points of the Gospel of Matthew is that Matthew doesn't seem to be too interested in this fact. The deity of Christ doesn't appear to be a topic that is that central to the the development of this gospel. Of course, this is not to say that Matthew doesn't touch on it at all. Uh, You go back to the healing of the paralytic, for instance, and Jesus' authority to forgive sins is clearly an indicator of His divine authority. When Jesus forgives that man's sin, the scribes are ready to accuse Jesus of blasphemy precisely because they understood that only God can forgive sin. So Jesus proves that He has authority 
to do this by telling the man to pick up his pallet and walk. The idea is that, yes, only God can forgive sins, and Jesus can apparently forgive sins. Therefore, Jesus is God. If you recall our study of the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus' crossing of the Sea of Galilee after that, where he walks on water, I said that this miracle, and in particular his walking on water, was indicative of Jesus' deity. In fact, when the disciples first see Jesus on the water and think he's a ghost, Jesus' very first words to them are, Take heart, ego emi, I am. This is how the Old Testament depicted the parting of the Red Sea. Psalm 77 depicts God stepping out into the sea and the waters fleeing from His presence. Jesus mirrors this miracle in His crossing of the Red Sea and He proves that His power rests in Himself by commanding Peter to come out of the boat and walk on the water with Him. The idea is that Jesus is not just a man, especially empowered by God, but that He is God. In the same way, when the woman with the hemorrhage is healed simply by touching Jesus, or when Jesus performs miracles like the feeding of the 5,000 or the raising of Jairus' daughter without praying, simply by His own authority, the signs point to the fact that Jesus is a different kind of miracle worker. One that does not perform miracles merely by divine authorization, but on the basis of His own divine authority. The transfiguration is another demonstration of Jesus' divine status. There, Jesus is suddenly transfigured, and as He shines in His glory, the two men who witnessed God's glory at Mount Sinai, Moses and Elijah, appear, and they have a conversation with Him about His coming departure. This comes right after Jesus' first revelation of His coming death to His disciples, which you'll remember Peter initially challenged on the grounds that according to his understanding of the Old Testament, the Messiah wasn't supposed to suffer. The idea behind the transfiguration is that the disciples are not in a position to question Jesus' interpretation of the Old Testament because He was the one who actually spoke it to those prophets. Again, He is God. So it's not that Matthew just avoids this topic. He too testifies to the deity of Christ in his gospel. It just isn't a central concern. He's less interested in that, less interested in issues like the atonement even, and he's more interested in Jesus' status as the Davidic king. And the reason it would seem is because he's writing to a Jewish audience. This audience is looking for the coming salvation of Israel, which they know will come at the hands of one of David's descendants. You go back to the Old Testament and it's very clear that Israel's salvation is going to be accomplished by a son of David who comes in judgment with great power. David, of course, was a warrior king and it was assumed that the coming Davidic king would be like him. He would come and in the words of Psalm 2, he would smash the nations of the earth like pieces of pottery. His dominion would be a global one and Israel would be at the center of it all. The Old Testament actually said that the son of David was going to reunite Israel into a single kingdom once again. He would defeat the nation's enemies, reestablish the children of Abraham in their land, and rule over all the other nations of the earth from Israel. In fact, the Old Testament says that in that day, the rest of the nations would actually stream up to Jerusalem to pay tribute and worship the God of Israel. This is what the reign of the Messiah would look like. 
All in all, it's an overwhelming and stunning picture of Israel's restoration. Isaiah indicates that this son of David would actually open the eyes of Israel. He would take away their spiritual blindness and remove their stony hearts so that the nation would come to love God again. So he would accomplish a spiritual restoration of Israel. And with this spiritual restoration, he would bring Israel to repentance, which would then cause all the blessings of God that he had promised to his people to come showering down upon them. In fact, the book of Daniel even says that the Old Testament saints would be resurrected at this time so that they could enjoy the land of their inheritance. Israel's restoration would be that radical. And it would all come at the hands of this promised Davidic king. In other words, Israel had a very specific kind of future that they were anticipating. One that was centered around the restoration of the Davidic throne. And so when it came to the potential arrival of the Messiah, the question that was on their minds was not, is he the son of God? But is he the son of David? Well, today's passage is different. Because in today's passage, Jesus does something incredibly remarkable. And that is he weds together this idea that he is the son of David with this idea that He is also the Son of Man, the Son of God. And the melding of these two concepts would have not only radically challenged the thinking of those original Israelites about who they thought the Son of David was, but I think it should challenge our thinking as well as we consider who the Son of God is. This merging of these two ideas occurs in the wake of the religious leader's latest challenge to Jesus. Of course, we've explored that challenge over the past couple of weeks. I'm not going to take a lot of time to go over the specifics of all of that again. But you'll recall that this latest challenge was less a challenge and more of an examination. As I said just a few minutes ago, Jesus answered the Sadducees' question about the resurrection so powerfully that it appears that a dispute has begun to occur among the Pharisees regarding the authenticity of Jesus' claims. We know, of course, that some Pharisees later came to believe in Jesus. One of these Pharisees, a man by the name of Nicodemus, was apparently present here in Jerusalem during the Passover. He would even help bury Jesus by the end of this week. So while the Pharisees on the whole seem to have rejected Jesus, it's not exactly a consensus. And it would seem that this is most especially the case in the wake of Jesus' answer to the Sadducees. According to Luke, some of the scribes heard this answer and even said to Jesus, Teacher, you've spoken well. They praise him for the wisdom of his answer. Well, according to Mark, the Pharisees then begin to dispute with one another. And as this dispute is going on, this lawyer hears what's taking place and he tries his hand at getting to the bottom of this whole business. He comes up to Jesus and he asks him, What's the great commandment of the law? And again, it doesn't appear that he's trying to destroy Jesus with this question. Jesus will actually tell this man that he's not far from the kingdom of heaven by the time the whole exchange is done. So it doesn't appear that this man is necessarily hostile to Jesus. He just wants to test to see if Jesus' claims are legit. And so he asks this question about the law. As I just mentioned, the Old Testament stated that the Messiah would reign over the earth in justice, in righteousness. This necessarily entails that he be an expert in God's law. And so this lawyer tests Jesus' claims by examining whether or not he is an expert in the law. And he does this by asking for, essentially, a summary of the law. It's a brilliant question. 
Because it tests Jesus' basic understanding of the law, his proficiency in legal theory, so to speak. And Jesus gives a brilliant answer. He says that all the law and the prophets can be summarized first with the command to love God, to worship Him with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind, and then second with the command to love one's neighbor as yourself. And while Matthew doesn't disclose this point, Mark tells us that the lawyer agrees. He says that Jesus is absolutely right. In other words, the dispute is apparently settled. And according to the challenge brought by this lawyer... Jesus is qualified to judge the earth. And as you can imagine, this would have only fueled the fire for the debate even more. Now you would have even more Pharisees saying that perhaps they should reconsider their position. And you would have had this section of Pharisees that rejected Jesus pushing back even harder against Him. Well, it's in the midst of that sort of debate, while the Pharisees are still gathered together, that Jesus Jesus then moves in to close the deal. He doesn't just sit back passively and watch the debate unfold. No, he engages. And what he says next is going to push those who've rejected him even further away, while also presenting to those sitting on the fence, in very stark terms, the kind of decision that has to be made if they choose to side with him. In other words, Jesus is going to increase the divide between these two groups. And the ones that choose to side with Jesus, they have to realize what they're signing up for. There's more at stake in their decision than what they realize. And Jesus is going to make sure that they know that before they land. So Jesus is is standing here at the end of this series of challenges, victorious, vindicated. The Pharisees, meanwhile, are in disarray. And then Jesus says this, He says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Again, the Pharisees are debating amongst themselves whether or not Jesus might be the Christ. And in the the middle of that debate, Jesus asks this question about the Christ. Clearly, he means it as a reference to himself. But at this time, whether or not that title should be applied to him is still up for grabs. And so Jesus presents this question in the third person, kind of detached. He's giving them something to consider about the Christ as they continue to deliberate amongst themselves about whether or not they should regard him in this way. Now the question at this point is essentially rhetorical. Everyone would have known who the Christ is, whose son he is. Jesus isn't meaning to test them with this statement to see whether or not they knew the answer. He knows they know the answer. He just wants them to affirm something about the Christ's identity before he goes on to make a point. Everyone knew that the Christ is the son of David. So the Pharisees go along and they answer Jesus. He's the son of David. And now Jesus moves in to make his point. He says, so you say the Christ is the son of David. Well, this is a curious thing. Because David actually says in Psalm 110 that the Christ is his Lord. So how is it then, if the Christ is the son of David, that David in the Spirit, which is to say that David under the divine, infallible inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how is it that he in the Spirit calls him Lord? And then Jesus quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, where David, speaking in the first person, says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. How does that work, Jesus says? If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? 
The point, although incredibly profound, is also very simple. You don't call your son Lord. Right? No one calls their son or daughter Master. A lot of sons and daughters probably wish their parents did. But no one actually does that. But that's what David calls the Christ, his son. In Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, literally, Yahweh says to my Adonai, my master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool, or your footstool. This would have been unheard of in a patriarchal society like Israel for a father, especially for a great patriarch like David, to call one of his descendants Lord. It was just assumed that the older one was the greater. He was the one from whom all the rest came. They all owed their life and well-being to him. So it was assumed that the father was the authority. He was the Lord, the master, the Adonai. And yet here, David calls his son Lord, master. And what does that mean? It means that the Messiah had to somehow be greater than David. There had to be some way that David could look at his descendant and say, you are superior to me. You are greater than me. Even though you are my descendant, I owe my life and allegiance to you. And how can that be? How can it be that the, how can it be that the Messiah is, is merely a descendant of David in that instance? The answer is that it can't. The Messiah cannot be David's Lord if he is merely a descendant of David. There had to be something about him that made him greater. And the implication, though subtle, is that he had to be divine. This point is further expressed when God says to the Messiah in this passage in Psalm 110, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. God calls the Messiah... And he raises him up and tells him to sit at his right hand. To sit, as it were, as an equal. To be seated alongside him as a kind of peer. A peer who is absolutely submitted to the great king, but one who is worthy to sit by his side. And in heaven, nonetheless. This is absolutely stunning. Jesus has done it again. We've already seen Jesus prove the resurrection with the tense of a single verb. Well, now he takes another very familiar passage and he points out something that nobody seems to have ever seen before. The Messiah is more than just a man. He's God. And the Old Testament predicted it. The religious leaders don't know what to say. Matthew only says that from that moment forward, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. They don't know how to answer Jesus, but they know enough to know they don't want to ask Him anything else because He keeps making them look foolish. He keeps affirming things from Scripture that they didn't like. And so they just pull away. It's like it says in Proverbs 18.1, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. That's how fools act. They're too proud to admit that they're wrong. And so what do they do? They pull away. And they isolate themselves from everyone else so they can avoid their correction. Then they crown themselves king of their own little dung heap. That's basically what happens here. Jesus' answers are so brilliant that they determine they don't want to have anything more to do with him, so they stop asking him questions. 
And you know, I think it's possible that there may even be more going on here than meets the eye. When Matthew says that they didn't dare to ask Jesus any more questions at this point, I think there might be going, more going on here. Because you see, when Jesus asks this question in this context, as he's under examination by the religious leaders, and as they now deliberate over the meaning of his answers, this answer, this question, highlights several key aspects of the Messiah's ministry that in context would have terrified those who are perhaps reconsidering their position. The first thing that this passage reveals, of course, is that the Messiah is God. So if Jesus is the Messiah, then what it means is that in opposing Him, they are opposing God Himself. They are rebelling against a man who possesses in Himself all the authority of God, who even sits at the right hand of God as God's chosen and favored servant. That's a terrifying concept when you consider the next two ideas that are revealed in this passage. For instance, the second thing this passage reveals, and this is the most important given what's going on here during Passion Week and what's, what was happening in Matthew's day, the second thing this passage reveals is that the Messiah's reign would not be immediate. This is the son of David. Not a son of David, but the son of David, the Messiah. Everyone recognizes this. But what's interesting is that in this passage, he is not enthroned in Jerusalem. Not on the throne of David. No, he's lifted up to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God. Now, perhaps you could read this verse in a metaphorical sense and say that the passage doesn't require the Messiah to actually sit at the right hand of God in heaven, but it doesn't take away the fact that this passage still teaches that there is some kind of interval before the Messiah's enthronement, during which time the Messiah awaits the coming destruction of his enemies. So whether the Messiah actually ascends to heaven or not, according to this passage, at the very least, it teaches that his kingdom is not immediate. In this passage, the Messiah has enemies that oppose him, and he's simply waiting for the moment when God empowers him and orders him to go forth and destroy them. So everything that the religious leaders are plotting, this plan to oppose Jesus' claim to the throne by killing him, the Old Testament predicted that too. It indicated that the Messiah would not enter his kingdom right away, that he would be opposed first. So this whole exchange here in the temple, where they're challenging Jesus' authority, they're plotting against him in order to stop him. The Old Testament predicted this. And this would have been terrifying, because this passage then also reveals that they, the religious leaders, are the enemies in this psalm. This would have been a terrifying realization, because you continue to read this psalm, And what you see is that once God sends this ruler from Zion to execute judgment upon his enemies, to make them his footstool, it's brutal. Verse 5, for instance, says, referring to the Messiah, He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. We're talking total annihilation, complete destruction. So here they are deliberating over Jesus after they've just tried to discredit Him. Most of them are still plotting to destroy Him. And in the midst of this, Jesus says, tell me about the son of David. Remind me, whose son is He again? The son of David. Are you sure about that? Are you sure that's all there is to it? And what He's revealing to them is that in everything the Old Testament predicted about the Messiah, it was being fulfilled in their presence. And they're on the losing side. 
You can only imagine the kind of chilling effect that would have had if they had perceived any of this. You can see why no one would, quote, dare ask him another question after this. The ones who oppose him don't want to continue to be exposed by him. And the ones who aren't sure what to do with him don't want to be found in opposition to him if he is the Messiah. So the questions stop here. Incidentally, I think there's a fourth thing that this passage reveals as well, which I think is fitting for this setting, but which Jesus doesn't really address. So I think it's kind of hard to say how much we should draw from it. If you recall, the first question that the religious leaders came with was this question about Jesus' authority. They asked Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? They said this, of course, in response to Jesus' claims to his messianic authority. And in response to his cleansing of the temple in particular. You guys remember that? Well, in verse 4 of Psalm 110, God says this to the Messiah. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I don't want to spend a lot of time trying to expound that statement, but if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, then you know that the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to the priesthood of Aaron. Aaron even symbolically paid tithes to Melchizedek through his father Abraham. In other words, You know how Jesus told the religious leaders that he wouldn't tell them where he got his authority to do these things because they wouldn't recognize John's baptism? Well, I think this is quite possibly where he would have gone if they had recognized John's baptism. Where did he get the authority to do these things? To even cleanse the temple? Well, he got it from his father who appointed him the son of David, a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Messiah is not just a king. He is a priest king and of a priesthood that is greater than that of Aaron. Now again, there's no way to prove any of that, but I think this is fitting for the, a fitting end for the whole exchange. This exchange started with a question about Jesus' authority, and it ends with a passage that explains His authority. Jesus does these things because as the Messiah, He is exalted to a position far above even that of David. What I think is striking about this passage It's how its intended application, how the issues that it addresses concerning the Messiah is so very opposite of the way that we think of the Messiah today. You see, do you know what a passage like this was intended to prove? Do you know what it's supposed to prove about the Son of David? It's supposed to prove that the Son of David is also the Son of God. And don't underestimate the significance of that concept to these original readers. We take the deity of Christ for granted today, but it was a revolutionary idea for the very first Christians. After all, those very first Christians were Jews. And if there was one thing that was taught to every Jewish boy and girl, if there was one thing that made Judaism truly unique in the ancient world, it was the belief that there was only one God. Only one God. Do you remember the Shema? We talked about the the Shema in our last passage. We said that there was was this statement in the Old Testament called the Shema that every faithful Jew was expected to recite twice a day, once in the morning and then again in the evening. And it's from this statement that Jesus got the idea that the great commandment of the law was to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Well, the very first words of the Shema are this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jews were staunchly monotheistic. This is actually why they ended up 
being such a thorn in the side of their pagan rulers, they refused to acknowledge any other gods as legitimate. They said there was only one God, Yahweh, and they refused to worship any others. Well, one of the central tenets of the Christian faith is that Jesus is God. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a righteous man or some kind of social revolutionary. He is God. What does this mean? Well, on, on a very practical level, it means that He's worthy of veneration and worship. It means other things as well. It means He should be obeyed, for instance. But what's more significant than anything else is that it means that He's worthy of adoration and praise. He's worthy of worship. That was a big deal to the first Christians because the one command that had been pounded into their head more than any other is that you do not worship any God but Yahweh. If all Jesus is claiming to be is a merely human Messiah, then there isn't too much at stake. If you're wrong, then maybe it means you end up disappointed. Maybe it means you get caught up in a political movement that fails. Either way, it's not really anything that's going to endanger your soul. But if he's claiming to be God, that's different. Because that means worship. And to worship Jesus when he is not God is to be found guilty of idolatry. I think this is why Jesus presses the issue as this deliberation is taking place. There are men like Nicodemus who are willing to give him serious consideration. Well, if they do, then they need to know what they're really signing up for. He's not just claiming to be the son of David. He's claiming to be God. And they need to factor that into their deliberations. Matthew's audience, they would have been intensely interested in a passage like this one. No doubt, one of the many charges that would have been leveled against them as Christians is that they were polytheists, meaning that they worshipped many gods. They venerated Jesus as God. To the average Israelite, this would have looked like the worship of many gods, since Christians also also worshipped what they would have seen as the God of the Old Testament, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Keep in mind, the doctrine of the Trinity was not yet clearly articulated at this point in history. That would come later in the church, as many Christians themselves tried to reconcile the deity of Christ with the Bible's teaching on monotheism by saying that Jesus wasn't actually fully God, just a very high order of created being. So this would have looked like polytheism at this point, to say that the Messiah is God. But what this passage proves is that the Old Testament said that the Messiah was God. This wasn't a late development. It wasn't something that Jesus and His disciples just made up as a sort of new innovation in their theology. It was predicted by no less than David himself under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Son of David was also David's Lord. Is there any doubt then that this passage, Psalm 110, would become the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament? Do you know that these verses are the most quoted Old Testament passage in the, in the New Testament? And is it any reason, is it any wonder why? After all, here's one of the most central and controversial tenets of the Christian faith, the divine authority of Jesus, taught in one of the most well-known Messianic passages of the Old Testament. This passage mattered. It, it demonstrated that it was okay for a Jew to worship the son of David Because the Old Testament taught that the Son of David was God. It's really a very important apologetic passage for that reason. It's a passage that the first Christians would have found very helpful as they tried to defend their faith to their Jewish brethren in Jesus' absence. 
And yet what I think is striking is that the most shocking thing about this passage for us today is not the idea that the Messiah is the Son of God, but I think rather the more shocking thing for us, if we really understand it, is that he is the son of David. I doubt anyone here in here even blinks at the thought that the Messiah is God. And I think if I were to pull the congregation and begin asking people why that matters, I'd get some pretty good answers. We have the Son of God thing down, which again makes sense because it's part of what makes Christians unique. This is one of the core doctrines of the Christian faith. To be completely honest, I actually had a really hard time figuring out how to preach a passage like this this week because this passage declares that the Messiah is God. And I doubt anyone in here wrestles with that fact. We all more or less take that for granted. But suppose I were to conduct another poll and say, now explain to me why it's important that the Messiah be the son of David. And I would bet people would have a lot harder time answering that question. I think we all know that he's the son of David. I mean, Christmas rolls around every year and we hear the angels proclaim to the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And we recognize that this means that Jesus is the son of David. But we don't really know what that means. We don't understand why that matters. And we still celebrate Christmas primarily for the incarnation, God coming into human flesh, not for the sprouting of the shoot of the stump of Jesse. It just doesn't matter that much to us. You know, I can still remember sitting in my, at my kitchen table in L.A. talking to this member of the Mother God cult, which is this group of people who worship this Korean woman as the Mother God and her now deceased husband as the second coming of Christ. It's a very kind of bizarre cult, but I actually came across their people a few times when I was out in L.A. It's... it's kind of big around college campuses there. Well, one day I was sitting there at the kitchen table talking with this guy who came to our door trying to tell us about the Mother God. And as this guy tried to tell me that the Christ has returned, I had to stop and ask him, I said, wait a second, you're telling me that the Christ is Korean? And he said, yeah. I said, well, well, that can't be. Because the Old Testament says that the Christ is a descendant of Abraham. He's the son of David. He's Jewish. And the man just sort of paused with this sort of stunned, looked on his face and said, well, that's pretty racist. And I go, it's not racist. It's just scripture. God announced these kinds of things well in advance so that we could properly identify the Messiah when he came and not get led astray by false messiahs like this one that you're telling me about here. You know, this isn't, this isn't a political office that you can run for. It's not, I mean, it's, this, is a, this is a prophecy that's going to be fulfilled by a specific individual. God's told us who that's going to be. And you know, we we kind of chuckle at this, but I think this man's reaction is actually indicative of the church's neglect of this doctrine. We just don't articulate it clearly enough that someone like this man could see why it would be strange for a Korean to claim to be the second coming of Christ. It is significant that the Son of God is also the Son of David, but we don't understand why. And I think we're spiritually impoverished for it. Listen, there's a reason why Matthew's audience was more concerned with the Messiah's Davidic identity than they were his divine one. And it's not because his divine identity identity didn't matter. It's just because they had a very clear, very specific 
understanding of what the future would be like. And that vision of the future was inextricably linked to the Messiah's identity as the son of David, not his identity as the son of God. They had a vision of a reordered world with a nationally and spiritually restored Israel sitting up at the top and the law of God emanating out from Jerusalem to the nations, which all required the coming of a second David, a greater David. And this was the gospel for them. They didn't have some vague notion of eternal life. They had a very specific vision of a restored earth ruled by a second Adam, a second David, that they would enjoy after their resurrection from the dead. And so they eagerly anticipated the coming of this warrior king who would save and protect Israel. I don't know that our vision of the future is quite that specific for most of us, many of us. We understand the atonement very well. And so we understand why it was necessary for the Christ to come as the Son of God. We get that there had to be a perfect sacrifice and that this that, that we, couldn't, uh, we couldn't have a perfect sacrifice without perfect obedience. And, and we understand that no mere descendant of Adam could obey perfectly. And so it was necessary for God to become a man so he could provide the obedience that we could never provide and die the death that we could never die. We get that. I would venture to say that at this point in history, we may even understand this point better than the ancient Israelites did. That's why they weren't looking for the coming of the Son of God. They couldn't comprehend the remedy of their sin until He was standing right there in front of them. The problem that we have is that we don't understand the point of the atonement very well. We know that Jesus died to give us eternal life, but then when we get around to describing what this eternal life is, we stammer and we fumble for words because it's just not that clear to us. And as we noted last Sunday evening, if you're part of that discussion, that's actually a problem when it comes to fulfilling our mission. If you weren't there last Sunday evening, one of the things that we observed as we considered the example of the Christians during the Cyprian plague was that it would seem that one of the reasons why they were so willing to surrender their lives for others was because they had a very clear vision of the future which told them that this life was not the most important thing that Jesus had won another life for them whose glory would far outshine the joys of this one. So they freely surrendered this life in order to attain the next one. Their vision of the future enabled them to love that radically, that sacrificially. Many of us have a hard time loving like that. We have a hard time ordering our lives entirely around Christ. And I would venture to say that much of this is due to the fact that we have a very dim understanding of our place in history. We don't really grasp that our future lives are more important than our present ones, and so we live as if this life is all there is. I think this could be remedied if we understood more clearly the significance of the fact that the Son of God is also the Son of David. He's gone for the moment, but He's coming back, and and what He's telling us at this portion of the Gospel is what we should do and think until He returns. And this is where I want to pick up tonight at 6 o'clock. I want us to continue our consideration of this passage by asking ourselves, why does it matter that Jesus is the Son of David? What did the Old Testament say that the Son of David would do when He comes? And how does this shape the way that you and I should live today? I've given you a few passages to read over and consider. Uh, Obviously, if you don't have time to look that over this afternoon, I understand we're going to look at them tonight at 6. And uh, hopefully... God can use this to shape our understanding of the future and with this increase our love for Him here 
in the present. Let's pray.